This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. The Holy Gospel according to Mark 9, Mark 9, 32-37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He, that is Jesus, did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them. And taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes not me but the one who sent me for the word of god in scripture for the word of god among us for the word of god within us well i think it's innate within each of us to want to be good at something to feel the joy and the satisfaction that comes from doing something well or being yeah, being good at something. We might even want to be great. I grew up a huge baseball fan. Went to Tiger Games as a kid, including when I was nine years old. It's a great year, 1984. Went to Tiger Stadium and watching Lance Parrish, Kirk Gibson, Lou Whitaker, and Alan Trammell play baseball. I celebrated later that October and cheered them on to a World Series title. Now, if you had told my nine-year-old self that nearly 40 years later, I was still hoping for a second World Series title, you know, that would have, might have dampened it just a little, but be that as it may. But I wasn't just a baseball fan, I liked to play baseball, so I played catch with my dad and my brother, I played on a local Little League team. Only problem was, I was average. I was really honest with myself, probably below average. But when you're little, your skills can develop quickly as you grow. And so after a very average Little League season when I was 10 years old, playing in the 10-year-old league, I was somehow granted one more season of eligibility in the 10-year-old league, but now I was 11. And it turns out when you're a year older than everyone else, and there's not very many years under your belt, that one year can make a difference. And so I rode that advantage to the best season of organized baseball in my life. Batted cleanup, played a mean third base, even made the all-star team. Why there are all-star teams in 10-year-old leagues, I'm not sure, but there it was. I wasn't complaining. The next year, however, I turned 12. I was bumped up to the 12 to 13 year old league, and I stumped. 
<laughs> it was just not good. Welcome back to Earth. Yeah. yeah. Well, Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, makes the astute observation that by definition, it is not possible for everyone to be above average. I'll let that sink in for a minute. Not all of us have had our coffee this morning. I mean, it just turns out some of us have to be below average for others to be above average. I guess that's how it works, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. In his book, Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell makes the observation that average people, if they are really committed to something, can become great. Anybody remember what he said you needed to do? 10,000 hours. Yeah, you needed to commit 10,000 hours of practicing something, of doing something, wouldn't guarantee that you'd be great, but it would at least set the foundation for being great. So if you're average, but you have time on your hands, I guess that's good news. <laughs> I guess that's good news. And he notes that Bill Gates didn't necessarily have innate gifts that allowed him to be a computer whiz, but that he started early as a kid coding and programming software, and it was all those hours he spent as a young person that laid the foundation for him to found a very successful software company years later in Microsoft. And he also notes that the Beatles didn't go from uh, zero to world famous in an instant. They would spend hours and hours playing in unknown German clubs long before they came on the scene in America. Sort of toiling away but honing their craft in obscurity. They put in the time, did the work, and it paid off. By the way, if you're trying to do the math, 10,000 hours is like 416 days, like straight, you know, 24 hour days. That's, that's over a year of your life with no sleeping, eating breaks. It's a lot, it's a lot, you gotta be committed. But should we aspire to be great? Is greatness something we should or should not seek out? Greatness is defined as a state of superiority affecting a person or object in a particular field. Greatness can also be attributed to individuals who possess a natural ability to be better than all others. And personally, I'm glad that we have great artists, great musicians, great painters, great athletes, great writers, and so on, because they inspire us, right? They move us, they lift us up. And I think maybe part of it has to do with motivation, this question of whether it's healthy or not to want to be great, right? If your motivation is so that everyone can look and say, look how great this person is, well, that's kind of ego heavy. It might not be all that great. But if rather your motivation is that you really love something, whatever it is, and want to be truly great at it for the satisfaction that comes with that, in and of itself, regardless of what anyone else thinks, well, we might be onto something. But whatever we think about greatness, uh, unsurprisingly, Jesus this morning manages to turn things on their head a little bit. And as we get into our text, we see that the disciples are having a bit of an argument as they're walking along the way with Jesus about who of them is the greatest. And it's an odd debate for them to be having because it's coming literally on the heels of Jesus just telling them that he's going to be betrayed and then killed. Yeah, that's fine, Jesus, but back to... Back to our conversation, Thomas. Right? It feels a little, like, disjointed, a little jarring. And when they arrive in town, 
Jesus asked them, oh, what were you arguing about on the way? As if he, I love how Jesus just sort of innocently, oh, what were you guys talking about? Didn't, didn't catch that. Whoops. Right? They sense the awkwardness of not only the topic, but the timing, perhaps, in which they were having this conversation. And then Mark writes, he sat down and called the twelve. And whenever the gospel writer of Mark says specifically that Jesus sat down and called the twelve, it's sort of like alert to the reader. Pay attention, something important is about to happen, it's about to be said by Jesus. And Jesus says, whoever wants to be first, or whoever wants to be great, must be last of all and servant of all. You want to be great? Jesus says, then serve. And so Jesus, in our text so far, has talked about two perhaps seemingly disconnected things, about his upcoming betrayal and death, and then that servanthood is the way to greatness. But are these things disconnected? The New Testament scholar Ched Meyer says, no, they're actually intimately connected, this idea of Jesus about to die and this idea of servanthood. And he says they're connected because the choice of the cross must also be daily reproduced in the concrete life of the community. In other words, the way of the cross isn't just about a one-time event right? that happens to Jesus. It's an invitation of all who would follow in Jesus' way to choose daily, in a sense, to die to self. In other, in other words, in, in, in evil. So that, but sometimes the words just don't come. Die to self so that you're able to bless and lift up others. Well, in case they aren't getting it, Jesus provides them with an object lesson. He sees a child, calls the child over, and says, whoever welcomes one such child welcomes me. And welcomes not only me, but the one who sent me. Now, children represented sort of the bottom of the social and economic scale in the ancient Mediterranean world. Sorry, kids. They were just low on the ladder. In fact, ancient uh, Near East scholar T.F. Carney says, age divisions in the first century were so hierarchical uh, that they were sharply demarcated and significant. And he says it was not until early adulthood that the young person began receiving serious consideration as even being a member of the family group. Oh, why do we have an extra spot at the table today? Is someone joining the big kids table? I mean, that, that's how serious age mattered and how little children were sort of thought of as being just not important back then. It reminds me of the story of the family who settled down for dinner at a restaurant. And the waitress first takes the order of the adults and then she comes to this seven-year-old boy who's sitting at the table. What will you have? She asks. Well, the boy looks timidly around the table and says, I'll have a hot dog. Well, before the waitress can write down the order, the mother interrupted, no hot dogs, she said. No hot dogs. He'll have a steak and mashed potatoes and carrots. Well, the waitress ignored her. Do you want ketchup or mustard on that hot dog? She said to the little boy. Ketchup. Coming up in a minute, said the waitress as she started for the kitchen. 
Well, there was a stunned silence at the table after she left. And finally, the little boy looks around at everyone present at the table and says, you know what? She thinks I'm real. Just a little glimpse, right? Sometimes kids are just ignored, looked over, their opinion doesn't count, it doesn't matter. And if that might be true today, it was way more true uh, in this setting and in this context. And another scholar notes, it was remarkable enough that Jesus draws attention at all the children, for they were considered non-entities. And it is quite shocking that he would advance, advance them as models for his social program. And so it turns out all three things Jesus has talked about in our text are connected. The cross, the way of servanthood, and the welcome and honoring of children. All represent the path of self-sacrifice, of humility, of gentleness, of non-ego. Scholar Ched Myers further notes that Jesus is teaching his disciples that the way of the cross, the way of non-violence, is, it means being attentive to the actual dynamics of social power and privilege among our friends, our family, our neighbors, our society. Paying attention to the power dynamics and privilege at play in our world. And when we pay attention to those things and do something about it, according to Jesus, then we are on to something great. And so we might imagine greatness as meaning moving up in the world. And Jesus would have us consider the other direction. An article in the Washington Post last year highlighted that the black and white economic divide in the United States is as wide today as it was in 1968. And by most accounts, the pandemic has only exacerbated that gap. In 1968, a typical middle-class black household had around $6,600 in wealth compared with around $70,700 for the typical middle-class white household. And I think that's probably adjusted for inflation. So 6,000 compared to 70,000. In 2016, the typical middle-class, so this is just five years ago, the typical middle-class black household had $13,000 in wealth versus nearly 150,000 in wealth for the median white household, which is an even larger gap percentage-wise than all those years earlier. And economists write the historical data revealed that no progress has been made in reducing income and wealth inequalities between black and white households in the last 70 years. In 1910, Francis Grimke, uh, minister of the 15th Street Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., was speaking about uh, the proliferation of Jim Crow racism and talking a bit about the church's role in that. It's 1910. He says that the Christianity represented in white America is spurious, I'm not prepared to say, 
that the church has failed to do its duty in this matter, however, I am prepared to say. Had it been true to its great commission, had it, that is the church, lived up to its opportunities, had it stood squarely and uncompromisingly for Christian principles, then the sad, the humiliating, the disgraceful fact of which we are speaking would never have been possible. He goes on and says, the fact that in Christian America, in this land that is rolling up its church members by the millions, racial prejudice has gone on steadily increasing, and we might add, the white-black income gap has also gone on steadily increasing, is a standing indictment of the white Christianity in this land. And an indictment that ought to bring the blush of shame to the faces of the men and women who are responsible for it, whose silence, whose quiet acquiescence, whose cowardice or worse, whose active cooperation have made it possible. Amen. 1910. And then he says, the first thing for the church to do is to wake up to the fact that it can do something. Remember we said that the way of nonviolence and the path of greatness means being attentive to the social dynamics power and privilege happening around us. Jesus says, you want to be great? Then ask why the number of black small businesses that were forced to shut their doors during the pandemic was well over twice the rate of white businesses. Ask why more than one in five black families now report that they often or sometimes do not have enough food more than three times the rate for white families. Ask why middle-class income hit an all-time high in 2018 for whites, while the median black income is actually $2,000 lower than it was nearly 20 years earlier. Ask why only 44% of black households own their homes, compared with nearly 74% of whites, and why this is little changed since the 1960s. Ask all these questions and more, and then, as the old preacher said, do something about it. <clears throat> then we might be onto something truly great. Amen. Invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. streaming on Facebook. You can also watch these messages on the Holland UCC YouTube channel. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.